0: Book 3, Part 3 of The Annals, by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Annals, by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume 1. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broderib. Book three, A.D. twenty to twenty two. Part three. Next was exposed an abuse, hitherto the subject of many a whispered complaint. The vilest wretches used a growing freedom in exciting insult and obloquy against respectable citizens. And escaped punishment by clasping some statue of the emperor. The very freedman or slave was often an actual terror to his patron or master, whom he would menace by word and gesture. Accordingly, Caius Cestius, a senator, argued that, though princes were like deities, yet even the gods listened only to righteous prayers from their suppliants, and that no one fled to the capital or any other temple in Rome, to use it as an auxiliary in crime. There was an end and utter subversion of all law, when, in the forum and on the threshold of the Senate House, Annia Rufilla, whom he had convicted of fraud before a judge, assailed him with insults and threats, while he did not himself dare to try legal proceedings, because he was confronted by her, with the emperor's image. There rose other clamorous voices, with even more flagrant complaints, and all implored Drusus to inflict exemplary vengeance, till he ordered Rufilla to be summoned, and on her conviction, to be confined in the common prison. Considius Iquus, too, and Coleus Cursa, Roman knights, were punished on the emperor's proposal, by a decree of the Senate, for having attacked the praetor Magius Caecilianus with false charges of treason. Both these results were represented as an honour to Drusus. By moving in society at Rome, amid popular talk, his father's dark policy, it was thought, was mitigated. Even voluptuousness in one so young gave little offence. Better that he should incline that way spent his days in architecture, his nights in banquets, than that he should live in solitude, cut off from every pleasure, and absorbed in a gloomy vigilance and mischievous schemes. Tiberius indeed, and the informers were never weary. Ancharius Priscus had prosecuted Caesius Cordus, proconsul of Crete, for extortion, adding a charge of treason, which then crowned all indictments. Antistius Vetus, one of the chief men of Macedonia, who had been acquitted of adultery, was recalled by the emperor himself, with a censure on the judges, to be tried for treason as a seditious man who had been implicated in the designs of Rescoporis when that king, after the murder of his brother Cotis, had meditated war against us the accused was accordingly outlawed, with a further sentence that he was to be confined in an island from which neither Macedonia nor Thrace were conveniently accessible. As for Thrace, since the division of the kingdom between Romitalchis and the children of Cotis, who because of their tender age were under the guardianship of Trebellianus Rufus, it was divided against itself, from not being used to our rule, and blamed Romitalchis no less than Trebellianus for allowing the wrongs of his countrymen to go unpunished. Coalalatai, Odrisai, and Dei, powerful tribes, took up arms under different leaders, all on a level from their obscurity. This hindered them from combining in a formidable war. Some roused their immediate neighbourhood, others crossed Mount Hemus to stir up remote tribes. Most of them, and the best disciplined, besieged the king in the city of Philippopolis, founded by the Macedonian Philip. When this was known to Publius Valius, who commanded the nearest army, he sent some allied cavalry and light infantry to attack those who were roaming in quest of plunder or of reinforcements, while he marched in person with the main strength of the foot to raise the siege. Every operation was at the same moment successful. The pillagers were cut to pieces, dissensions broke out among the besiegers, and the king made a well-timed sally just as the legion arrived. A battle, or even a skirmish, it did not deserve to be called, in which merely half-armed stragglers were slaughtered without bloodshed on our side. That same year, Some states of Gaul, under the pressure of heavy debts, attempted a revolt. Its most active instigators were Julius Florus, among the Treveri, and Julius Sacravir among the Aedui. Both could show noble birth and signal services rendered by ancestors, for which Roman citizenship had formerly been granted them when the gift was rare and a recompense only of merit in secret conferences to which the fiercest spirits were admitted or any to whom poverty or the fear of guilt was an irresistible stimulus to crime they arranged that florus was to rouse the belgae sacrifier the gauls nearer home these men accordingly talked sedition before small gatherings and popular assemblies about the perpetual tributes the oppressive usury the cruelty and arrogance of their governors hinting too that there was disaffection among our soldiers since they had heard of the murder of germanicus it was they said a grand opportunity for the recovery of freedom if only they would contrast their own vigour with the exhaustion of italy the unwarlike character of the city populace and the utter weakness of rome's armies in all but their foreign element scarcely a single community was untouched by the germs of this commotion first however in actual revolt were the andacavi and tironi of these the former were put down by an officer achilleus aviola who had summoned a cohort which was on garrison duty at Lugdunum. The Turoni were quelled by some legionary troops sent by Veselius Varro, who commanded in lower Germany, and led by the same Aviola and some Gallic chieftains who brought aid, in order that they might disguise their disaffection and exhibit it at a better opportunity. Sacrevere, too, was conspicuous, with head uncovered, cheering on his men to fight for Rome, to display, as he said, his valour but the prisoners asserted that he sought recognition that he might not be a mark for missiles. Tiberius, when consulted on the matter, disdained the information, and fostered the war by his irresolution. Florus, meanwhile, followed up his designs and tried to induce a squadron of cavalry levied among the Treveri, trained in our service and discipline, to begin hostilities by a massacre of the Roman traders. He corrupted a few of the men, but the majority were steadfast in their allegiance. A host, however, of debtors and dependents took up arms, and they were on their way to the forest passes known as the Arduena, when they were stopped by legions which Veselius and Silius had sent from their respective armies by opposite routes to meet them. Julius Indus, from the same state, who was at feud with Florus, and therefore particularly eager to render us a service, was sent on in advance with a picked force, and dispersed the undisciplined rabble. Florus, after eluding the conquerors by hiding himself in one place after another, at last when he saw some soldiers who had barred every possible escape, fell by his own hand. Such was the end of the rebellion of the Treveri. A more formidable movement broke out among the Aedui, proportioned to the greater wealth of the state, and the distance of the force which should repress it. Sacrevere, with some armed cohorts, had made himself master of Augusta Dunum, the capital of the tribe, with the noblest youth of Gaul, there devoting themselves to a liberal education and with such hostages he proposed to unite in his cause their parents and kinsfolk. He also distributed among the youth arms which he had had secretly manufactured. There were forty thousand, one-fifth armed like our legionaries. The rest had spears and knives and other weapons used in the chase. In addition were some slaves who were being trained for gladiators, clad after the national fashion in a complete covering of steel, they were called crupellarii and though they were ill adapted for inflicting wounds, they were impenetrable to them. This army was continually increased, not yet by any open combination of the neighbouring states, but by zealous individual enthusiasm, as well as by strife between the Roman generals, each of whom claimed the war for himself. Varro, after a while, as he was infirm and aged, yielded to Cilius, who was in his prime. At Rome, meanwhile, people said that it was not only the Treveri and Idui who had revolted, but sixty-four states of Gaul, with the Germans in alliance, while Spain too was disaffected. Anything, in fact, was believed, with rumour's usual exaggeration. All good men were saddened by anxiety for the country, But many, in their loathing of the present system, and eagerness for change, rejoiced at their very perils, and exclaimed against Tiberius for giving attention amid such political convulsions to the calumnies of informers. Was Sacrevere too, they asked, to be charged with treason before the Senate? We have at last found men to check those murderous missives by the sword. Even war is a good exchange for miserable peace. Tiberius, all the more studiously, assumed an air of unconcern. He changed neither his residence nor his look, but kept up his usual demeanour during the whole time, either from the profoundness of his reserve, or was it that he had convinced himself that the events were unimportant and much more insignificant than the rumours represented? Silius, meantime, was advancing with two legions, and having sent forward some auxiliary troops, was ravaging those villages of the Sequani, which, situated on the border, adjoined the Aedui, and were associated with them in arms. He then pushed on by forced marches to Augusta Dunum, his standard-bearers vying in zeal, and even the privates loudly protesting against any halt for their usual rest, or during the hours of night. Only, they said, let us have the foe face to face. That will be enough for victory. Twelve miles from Morgastadunum they saw before them Sacrevir and his army in an open plain. His men in armor he had posted in the van, his light infantry on the wings, and the half armed in the rear. He himself rode amid the foremost ranks on a splendid charger, reminding them of the ancient glories of the Gauls, of the disasters they had inflicted on the Romans, how grand would be the freedom of the victorious, how more intolerable than ever the slavery of a second conquest. His words were brief, and heard without exultation, for now the legions in battle array were advancing, and the Rabolov townsfolk who knew nothing of war had their faculties of sight and hearing quite paralysed cilius on the one hand though confident hope took away any need for encouragement exclaimed again and again that it was a shame to the conquerors of germany to have to be led against gauls as against an enemy only the other day the rebel tyrone had been discomfited by a single cohort The Trevery by one cavalry squadron, The Sequani by a few companies of this very army, Prove to these Idui once for all That the more they abound in wealth and luxury, The more unwarlike are they, But spare them when they flee. Then there was a deafening cheer, The cavalry threw itself on the flanks, And the infantry charged the van. On the wings there was but a brief resistance, The men in mail were somewhat of an obstacle, as the iron plates did not yield to javelins or swords. But our men, snatching up hatchets and pickaxes, hacked at their bodies and their armour as if they were battering a wall. Some beat down the unwieldy mass with pikes and forked poles, and they were left lying on the ground without an effort to rise like dead men. Sacrevere, with his most trustworthy followers, hurried first to Augusta Dunum, and then, from fear of being surrendered, to an adjacent country-house. There, by his own hand, he fell, and his comrades by mutually inflicted wounds. The house was fired over their heads, and with it they were all consumed. Then at last Tiberius informed the senate by letter, of the beginning and completion of the war, without either taking away from or adding to the truth, but ascribing the success to the loyalty and courage of his generals, and to his own policy. He also gave the reasons why neither he himself nor Drusus had gone to the war. He magnified the greatness of the empire, and said it would be undignified for emperors, whenever there was a commotion in one or two states, to quit the capital, the centre of all government. Now, as he was not influenced by fear, he would go to examine and settle matters. The Senate decreed vows for his safe return, with thanksgivings and other appropriate ceremonies. Cornelius Dolabella alone, in endeavouring to outdo the other senators, went the length of a preposterous flattery by proposing that he should enter Rome from Campania with an ovation. Thereupon came a letter from the emperor declaring that he was not so destitute of renown as after having subdued the most savage nations and received or refused so many triumphs in his youth, to covet now that he was old an unmeaning honour for a tour in the neighbourhood of Rome. About the same time, he requested the Senate to let the death of Sulpicius Quirinus be celebrated with a public funeral. With the old patrician family of the Sulpicii, this Quirinus, who was born in the town of Lanuvium, was quite unconnected an indefatigable soldier he had by his zealous services won the consulship under the divine augustus and subsequently the honours of a triumph for having stormed some fortresses of the homonodenses in cilicia he was also appointed adviser to caius caesar in the government of armenia and had likewise paid court to tiberius who was then at rhodes the emperor now made all this known to the senate had extolled the good offices of Quirinus to himself, while he censured Marcus Lollius, whom he charged with encouraging Caius Caesar in his perverse and quarrelsome behaviour. But people generally had no pleasure in the memory of Quirinus because of the perils he had brought, as I have related, on Lepida and the meanness and dangerous power of his last years. At the close of the year, Caius Lutorius Priscus, a Roman knight, who, after writing a popular poem bewailing the death of Germanicus, had received a reward in money from the emperor, was fastened on by an informer, and charged with having composed another during the illness of Drusus, which, in the event of the prince's death, might be published with even greater profit to himself. He had in his vanity read it in the house of Publius Petronius before Vitellia, Petronius's mother-in-law, and several ladies of rank. As soon as the accuser appeared, all but Vitellia were frightened into giving evidence. She alone swore that she had heard not a word. But those who criminated him fatally were rather believed, and on the motion of Heterius Agrippa, the consul-elect, the last penalty was invoked on the accused. Marcus Lepidus spoke against the sentence as follows. Senators, if we look to the single fact of the infamous utterance with which Lutorius has polluted his own mind and the ears of the public, neither dungeon nor halter nor tortures fit for a slave would be punishment enough for him. But though vice and wicked deeds have no limit, Penalties and correctives are moderated by the clemency of the sovereign, and by the precedence of your ancestors and yourselves. Folly differs from wickedness, evil words from evil deeds, and thus there is room for a sentence by which this offence may not go unpunished, while we shall have no cause to regret either leniency or severity. Often have I heard our emperor complain when anyone has anticipated his mercy by a self-inflicted death. Lutorius' life is still safe. If spared, he will be no danger to the state. If put to death, he will be no warning to others. His productions are as empty and ephemeral as they are replete with folly. Nothing serious or alarming is to be apprehended from the man who is the betrayer of his own shame, and works on the imaginations not of men, but of silly women. However, let him leave Rome, lose his property, and be outlawed. That is my proposal, just as though he were convicted under the law of treason. Only one of the ex-consuls. Rebellious Blandus supported Lepidus. The rest voted with Agrippa. Priscus was dragged off to prison and instantly put to death. Of this Tiberius complained to the Senate with his usual ambiguity, extolling their loyalty in so sharply avenging the very slightest insults to the sovereign. Though he deprecated such hasty punishment of mere words, praising Lepidus, and not censuring Agrippa. So the Senate passed a resolution that their decrees should not be registered in the Treasury till nine days had expired, and so much respite was to be given to condemned persons. Still the Senate had not liberty to alter their purpose, and lapse of time never softened Tiberius. Caius Sulpicius and Didius Haterius were the next consuls. It was a year free from commotions abroad, while at home stringent legislation was apprehended against the luxury which had reached boundless excess in everything on which wealth is lavished. Some expenses, though very serious, were generally kept secret by a concealment of the real prices but the costly preparations for gluttony and dissipation were the theme of incessant talk, and had suggested a fear that a prince who clung to old-fashioned frugality would be too stern in his reforms. In fact, when the Edel Caius Bibulus broached the topic, all his colleagues had pointed out that the sumptuary laws were disregarded, that prohibited prices for household articles were every day on the increase and that moderate measures could not stop the evil the senate on being consulted had without handling the matter referred it to the emperor tiberius after long considering whether such reckless tastes could be repressed whether the repression of them would not be still more hurtful to the state Also, how undignified it would be to meddle with what he could not succeed in, or what, if affected, would necessitate the disgrace and infamy of men of distinction. At last addressed a letter to the Senate to the following purport. Perhaps in any other matter, Senators, it would be more convenient that I should be consulted in your presence, and then state what I think to be for the public good. In this debate, it was better that my eyes should not be on you, for while you were noting the anxious faces of individual senators charged with shameful luxury, I too myself might observe them, and, as it were, detect them. Had those energetic men our idols first taken counsel with me, I do not know whether I should not have advised them to let alone vices so strong and so matured, rather than merely attain the result of publishing what are the corruptions with which we cannot cope. They, however, have certainly done their duty, as I would wish all other officials likewise to fulfil their parts. For myself, it is neither seemly to keep silence nor is it easy to speak my mind, as I do not hold the office of edil, praetor, or consul. Something greater and loftier is expected of a prince, and while everybody takes to himself the credit of right policy, one alone has to bear the odium of every person's failures. For what am I first to begin with restraining, and cutting down to the old standard, the vast dimensions of country houses, the number of slaves of every nationality, the masses of silver and gold, the marvels in bronze and painting, the apparel worn indiscriminately by both sexes, or that peculiar luxury of women, which, for the sake of jewels, diverts our wealth to strange or hostile nations. I am not unaware that people at entertainments and social gatherings condemn all this and demand some restriction. But if a law were to be passed and a penalty imposed, those very same persons will cry out that the state is revolutionised, that ruin is plotted against all our most brilliant fashion, that not a citizen is safe from incrimination. Yet as even bodily disorders of long-standing and growth can be checked only by sharp and painful treatment, so the fever of a diseased mind, itself polluted and a pollution to others, can be quenched only by remedies as strong as the passions which inflame it. Of the many laws devised by our ancestors, Of the many passed by the divine Augustus, the first have been forgotten, while his, all the more to our disgrace, have become obsolete through contempt. And this has made luxury bolder than ever. The truth is that when one craves something not yet forbidden, there is a fear that it may be forbidden. But when people once transgress prohibitions with impunity, there is no longer any fear or any shame. Why then in old times was economy in the ascendant? Because everyone practised self-control. Because we were all members of one city. Nor even afterwards had we the same temptations while our dominion was confined to Italy victories over the foreigner taught us how to waste the substance of others victories over ourselves how to squander our own what a paltry matter is this of which the idols are reminding us what a mere trifle if you look at everything else no one represents to the senate that italy requires supplies from abroad and that the very existence of the people of Rome is daily at the mercy of uncertain waves and storms. And unless masters, slaves and estates have the resources of the provinces as their mainstay, our shrubberies forsooth, and our country houses will have to support us. Such senators are the anxieties which the prince has to sustain and the neglect of them will be utter ruin to the state. The cure for other evils must be sought in our own hearts. Let us be led to amendment, the poor by constraint, the rich by satiety. Or if any of our officials give promise of such energy and strictness as can stem the corruption, I praise the man, AND I CONFESS THAT I AM RELIEVED OF A PORTION OF MY BURDENS. BUT IF THEY WISH TO DENOUNCE VICE, AND WHEN THEY HAVE GAINED CREDIT FOR SO DOING, THEY AROUSE RESENTMENTS, AND LEAVE THEM TO ME, BE ASSURED, SENATORS, THAT I TOO AM BY NO MEANS EAGER TO INCUR ENMITIES and though for the public good I encounter formidable and often unjust enmities, yet I have a right to decline such as are unmeaning and purposeless, and will be of use neither to myself nor to you. When they had heard the emperor's letter, the Edols were excused from so anxious a task, and that luxury of the table which from the close of the war ended at Actium, to the armed revolution in which Servius Galba rose to empire, had been practised with profuse expenditure, gradually went out of fashion. It is as well that I should trace the causes of this change. Formerly rich or highly distinguished noble families often sank into ruin from a passion for splendour, Even then men were still at liberty to court and be courted by the city populace, by our allies, and by foreign princes, and every one who from his wealth, his mansion, and his establishment was conspicuously grand, gained too proportionate lustre by his name and his numerous clientele. After the savage massacres, in which greatness of renown was fatal, The survivors turned to wiser ways. The new men, who were often admitted into the senate from the towns, colonies, and even the provinces, introduced their household thrift, and though many of them by good luck or energy attained an old age of wealth, still their former tastes remained. But the chief encourager of strict manners was Vespasian, himself old-fashioned, both in his dress and diet. Henceforth a respectful feeling towards the prince and a love of emulation proved more efficacious than legal penalties or terrors. Or possibly there is in all things a kind of cycle, and there may be moral revolutions, just as there are changes of seasons. Nor was everything better in the past, But our own age, too, has produced many specimens of excellence and culture for posterity to imitate. May we still keep up with our ancestors a rivalry in all that is honourable. End of Book Three, Part Three